0: You know, there is something about being on a Florida beach with turquoise water and white sand beaches to give you perspective, to help you see a God's eye view of history, what's actually happening and and transpiring in the world in and through the church. This was good for me. It was good for me to get some perspective, to think about the church, And you see, to belong to the church is infinitely more significant than most people have ever realized. You see, when you think about the church, I don't want you to think in terms of a building, but a body of redeemed souls. When you think about the church, I don't want you to think a location, but a living organism of ransomed sinners. I don't want you to think geographically. I want you to think theologically about souls from every nation handpicked before time by the Father and given to his Son for whom he would die and purchased with his blood. You see, that is the church. And you see, when you think about the church, there are but two core Shaping, defining, defining realities that shape and govern everything that we are, and everything that we do. I mean, with all the innumerable complexities and moving parts that the church is, there are but two defining realities that shape and drive everything that we are, and everything that we do as a church, and here they are. Here are the two defining realities that make a church what it is. As a church, you see, we have a mission, and as a church, we have a destination. That's it. Those are the two realities that should drive and shape everything that we are and everything that we do. We have a mission and we have a destination. And the destination is, of course, the kingdom. The sovereign Invincible kingdom of Jesus Christ on the planet at the end of the age. that's the finish line of human history. That's where everything is going. That is the destination. And yet if the destination is the kingdom and it is, then that must mean that must mean that our mission is to bring as many people with us into that kingdom as absolutely possible. That's exactly what our mission is. We have a mission, we have a destination because you have to realize the people who will be there in the kingdom will be there precisely through the witness of the church. That's our mission, that's what's at stake. And that urgent global mission of getting lost people into the kingdom is exactly what we see in our text this morning because where we are this morning is the book of Psalms. And in particular, a kingdom psalm, a missions psalm, a psalm in which the poet pleads with God not only to bring his plan to completion, but that he and his people would be used by God to bring that plan to completion. See, the psalmist knew. He understood that the logical implications of having faith in Yahweh automatically means that you are responsible to help bring salvation to the ends of the earth. He knew that authentic faith is not to have our private little party while the world burns out there, but instead precisely to run into the fire and snatch as many people from the flames as possible. That was his mission. That was Israel's mission. That is the church's mission. This is our mission, and it's called the Great Commission. And you see, the thing about the Great Commission is it is two things all at the same time. It is both impossible and it is invincible. It's impossible for us. It's fallen, fragile human beings. But for the one who is sovereign and supreme, it is absolutely invincible. Certain. This is guaranteed. This is going to happen. Why? Because the invincible purpose of God is that the gospel of Christ spread to all the peoples of the world and take root in God-centered, Christ-exalting churches. And I believe that by God's grace, we can be that kind of church. That we can be a global outpost of joy in a world of despair. That if we play our cards right and we trust in the power of the word proclaimed that we don't ever have to be one of those churches who live in the glory days of how things used to be, We don't ever have to live in the afterglow of how things used to be, but rather we can push on to new horizons and new impact for the global cause of the king. Are you with me on this? Are you with me on this? Because how we be that kind of church by opening the sacred text of Holy Scripture and letting the global heart of God grip our souls with a glorious vision of a gospel that saves, of a grace that transforms, and of a sovereign God who's going to win it all in the end. So let's go to the text. Psalm 67, let's absorb together the poet's passion to see the plan of God come to completion and how it is that we can play Apart, here's where we're going this morning. I want you to see from our text three passionate pleas. Three passionate pleas that you must pray while we wait for the global joy of the kingdom of God. Say it again. Three passionate pre- pleas that we must pray while we wait for the global joy of the kingdom of God. The first passionate plea is this number one, you must plead with God's power to proclaim God's name. You must plead for God's power to proclaim God's name. Which is surprising, isn't it? That the passion to preach and the zeal to reach lost people is actually found in the Old Testament? That seems surprising, doesn't it? because we tend to think that the people of Israel only cared about the people of Israel and yet this should surprise us it shouldn't surprise us why because from the very beginning God had revealed a plan that would undo what Adam had done to reverse the curse and break the spell and take back the rebel planet and fill it with worshipers from every tribe and tongue and nation and people. That is the plan. That has always been the plan, and that is exactly what the poet prays for in Psalm 67. And yet, yet, I want you to notice how it is that he prays, because you see, what this is here is poetry. Carefully crafted highly structured Hebrew poetry. And you see, the thing about Hebrew poetry is that it's nothing at all like English poetry. You see, we like rhyming and timing and rhythm and tempo, but you see, what the Hebrews loved was structure and shape. See, Hebrews loved to organize their poems in such a way so as to draw our attention to particular theological themes. In fact, this psalm right here, this poem right here, is what we call a chiasm. A chiasm, and you've heard of that. And all that means, essentially, is that it's kind of a poetic whirlpool that draws our attention to the middle. See how chiasm works is that the first and last verse are parallel. The second and next to last verse are parallel. And on and on it goes until you get to the middle, to the culminating gravitational center of the psalm. And everything else in the psalm points to and culminates in the middle. And you can see it there. You can see it in the text and in your notes if you've got them. Look at verses 1 and 2 and verses 6 and 7. Guess what they are? They're parallel. They're parallel, asking for God's power to proclaim God's name, that all the ends of the earth would know him. But then, but then look at verses 3 and 5. They're exactly the same. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you, verse 5. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. It's not accidental. It's not a slip of the pen. Those duplicate verses perfectly frame the center of the psalm in verse 4, which unfolds for us the finish line of human history and what the end of the world is going to be. So I'm just going to preach the kiasm. I'm going to start with the outer rings of the poem and work our way to the middle in the hopes that we will ever more absorb the global vision of God to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Let's begin in verse one, the urgent plea in verse one. Look at the text. He says, let God be gracious to us and let him bless us and let him cause his face to shine upon us. Selah. Now you notice, don't you, the three things for which the poet asks. He asks for God's grace and for God's blessing, and for God's face to shine upon them. And those are a really big deal, and we're going to see what those mean. But I beg you to not overlook what is the first word in the Hebrew, and the most important word in the sentence, and in the psalm, and in all the psalms, and in all the Bible, and in the entirety of the universe, namely the word God. It's the first word in the Hebrew. And that's not a little detail. In fact, that means absolutely everything, because God is absolutely everything. You see, the poet understands that God exists to be known and loved and treasured and worshiped by the nations. And yet, because that does not happen, because he is largely ignored and belittled and blasphemed in the world, is exactly why this psalm exists. Because the nations, billions and billions of people, do not know him. So the poet pleads with God for grace and for blessing, and for God's face to shine upon them. And the question is, why? What what do those things even mean? And why does he want those things? Why does he want them? To improve his personal quality of life? To increase his comforts and securities, and to live in ease and luxury? And the answer is no, none of those things. In fact, it is exactly the opposite. You see, mission is the answer. Mission is the answer. God, be gracious to us. Bless us. Cause your face to shine upon us. Why? Verse 2, so that your way would be known on the earth, your salvation among all of the nations. And all of a sudden it becomes really clear what it is he's asking for in verse 1, isn't it? not the mushy comforts of a pain-free life, but everything they need to finish the mission that the ends of the earth would know and love the living God. And what they needed for that was grace and blessing in God's face to shine upon them. Meaning what? I mean, what what do those things even mean? What is he asking for? And I'll tell you what he's asking for. He is pleading in order for the power, the provision, and the pleasure of God. You see, grace is power. Blessing is provision, and God's face shining upon them is the sovereign gift of pleasure in himself. That's what he's talking about. Do You see, if we're going to proclaim God's name and spread God's fame to the nations and to our neighbors, we need God to be gracious to us because all grace is is the power of God to do what God requires. But second, if salvation is really, I mean, if it's really going to get to the nations, to the very ends of the earth, end of the co-workers we see every day, we desperately need God to bless us. We need God to bless us, which is not our private little pleasures while the world goes to hell out there, but rather it is the generous provision of everything we need to finish the mission. And finally, if we're really going to have the guts to be sheep in the midst of wolves, And lambs in the lion's den, we need God to cause his face to shine upon us. And all that is is a metaphor to describe the unhindered pleasure in God himself. In other words, when we see God, I mean really see God, see him for the treasure that he is i mean unless we are exhilarated by god we will always always just be hindered in our passion to preach and reach lost people and you see the psalmist understands that so this this just changes everything doesn't it even just the first two verses changes everything the way we pray and how we think about our lives why we pray how we live I mean, you can see it here, everything in this guy's life was prioritized around the global cause of Yahweh. Everything he wanted and prayed for, for his own life, was always and only for the sake of the nations, which means he understood that faith in Yahweh automatically meant the proclamation of that faith that to be a people chosen by god automatically makes you a people sent by god to the very ends of the earth which means we've had it all wrong for so long here in america i mean we want god's grace we want god's blessing we want his face to shine upon us and we should want those things but we have forgotten We don't even know what those things are for or why should why we should want them Because you see those things are given by God not as a means to escape from the world But precisely given by God to better engage the world Because look again at verse 2 Why does he ask for the things that he does God we need these things. We really need these things. Why so that your Way would be known on the earth. Your salvation among all of the nations. And there it is. Do you see it? The happily ever after of God's plan here in the text. The finish line of all human history. It's there. It's there. Namely, when God's ways are known on the earth and his salvation reaches to the nations. That's exactly where human history is headed. And he knows it. And get this, not only does he know that that's going to happen, he is asking for the power of God to help make that happen. He doesn't want to be a spectator, he wants to be a participator in what God is doing in the world. He wants to go where the bullets are flying. He wants to be in the trenches, on the front lines. Why? Because he knows, he gets it. He knows that God not only ordains the ending of the plan, but the means to that ending. And guess what? We are the means. We are the means to the end through the proclamation of the gospel. And notice, notice, look at the text. Notice what it is that he envisions. Look what he knows that is going to happen at the end of the age. He says, the ways of God will be known on the earth, meaning what? Meaning one day there will be a new world order. The wicked world system which exists today one day will be shattered and replaced by the sovereign, invincible, glorious ways of God on the earth. One day the whole world will be filled with the glory of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. One day at the end of the age when all history is over, the ways of God will be known and loved and treasured. And finally, we will be able to say the will of God is done on earth exactly as it is done in heaven. And yet the question is, when is that supposed to happen? Is that going to happen? You better believe that's going to happen. You know when? In the future kingdom of Jesus Christ. At the second coming when he comes to take back his rebel planet and and establish his invincible sovereign empire on it. In other words, what this is, is the very restoration of paradise itself. It's what the entire Old Testament is looking forward to. So what he is looking forward to. Psalm 72 says that when the Messiah comes to reign, that he will do so from sea to sea, from the river to the very ends of the earth. And so what he is pleading, don't miss this, what he is pleading is that he and his people could be a part of that. To get pagan nations saved and into the kingdom. Because they don't get there on their own. They get there through means. Preaching and prayer and planting churches, all the while suffering persecution. That is the means. The question is, did you know that? Did you know that you and I that we are the means? Did you know that the people who will be there in the kingdom will be there precisely through the witness of the church? That as a church, we have a mission and we have a destination. And a part of our, what our mission is, is to populate that kingdom with as many people as absolutely possible. That's what he is after. That's what he wants. But that's not all he wants because look at the second half of the verse. He says, God, give us grace. Give us blessing. Give us favor. That your way would be known on the earth. Here it is. Your salvation among all of the nations. And funny thing about that word salvation, Yeshua in Hebrew, is that it is so much more than mere forgiveness. It's so much more three dimensional than mere freedom from from judgment and guilt. Rather, salvation in the minds of the Jews, get this now, was something cosmic and comprehensive. Salvation in the minds of the Jews was something sweeping and eschatological. In other words, it wasn't only just the forgiveness and eternal life of the individual, it was the cosmic redemption of creation itself. The prophets at every turn reveal that when the Messiah returns and brings his kingdom with him, he will reverse the curse and break the spell, and he will restore the paradise which Adam first lost at the very beginning. Because you know, you know, some people love to flip houses for a living, don't they? Other people love to refurbish old cars. People in Hollywood love to digitally remaster old films and make them new. But you see, we have a Savior who when he comes, he will flip the whole planet when he arrives. He will refurbish the entire world, the entire, all of creation at his second coming. He will supernaturally remaster the world and every single thing in it. He will make all things be the way they ought to be. This is what Jesus paid for. This is what he bought with his blood. Not just the redemption of the individual, but the redemption of creation itself. And if you don't believe me, then you need to read Romans 8, 20 through 22 and Colossians 1, 15 through 20, and that will tell the story. So my question is, my question is, do you own this? Do you share the conviction with the psalmist that the only people who will be saved at the end of the age will be saved through the witness of the church? That we are the means? That we are the channel through which salvation reaches to the very ends of the earth. And if you think about this, this applies at a really practical level in our lives, doesn't it? Actual conversations with actual people. See, if we don't speak, they don't get saved. If we don't proclaim, the nations will certainly perish. So how we participate in what God is doing in the world, not the only way, but this is one of the primary ways, is by having real conversations with real people, preaching to them and proclaiming to them and persuading them that Jesus Christ is the answer to absolutely everything. My question is, are you willing to have those conversations? Are you willing to insert yourself into the lives of real unbelievers and invite both the pleasure and the persecution that's going to come your way. Because there's not another way to get people into the kingdom. We are the means. And he essentially says the same thing in verses 6 and 7. Look what he says. Again, this is the other half, the outer ring of the circle. He prays the exact same thing. He says, let the earth bring its produce. Let God, our God, bless us. Let God bless us so that all the ends of the earth may fear him. Now, I know that your Bible says it differently than that. But I really believe that the Hebrew grammar indicates that he's not merely stating something, he is asking for something. He is asking for the earth to bring its produce. He is asking God to bless them. Meaning what? Well, think about it. Israel lived off the land, didn't they? The Jews were an agricultural people, were they not? They survived and made their living through what God provided from the land. And so, you see, all he's asking for, get this now, is the blessing and provision of God. That is what he is asking for, the blessing and provision of God. Notice, not to indulge their private selfish appetites, but why, what reason did he give? Look at verse seven. Let our God bless us. Why? So that all the ends of the earth unbelievable that's unbelievable i mean what a radical radical paradigm shift from our american entitlement mentalities isn't it i mean we can be we can be so addicted and infatuated with our private comforts and pleasures because you see he wanted the blessing of god just like we do he wanted to earn a good living just like we do Put it this way, he wanted to make as much income as absolutely possible or as much as God was willing to provide, why? To increase his standard of living? No, to increase his standard of giving to the cause. Let God bless us so that all the ends of the earth would fear him. I'm the most unlikely person to teach a finance class, but I did it anyway. And when I taught the finance class a couple years ago, I said this again and again and again. I said, you know, we are rightly and appropriately concerned about being debt-free in America. That's right, and that's good, and we should pursue that. But you see, as slaves of Christ and heirs of his global mission, the calling is so much higher than being debt free. The goal is not merely being debt free, the goal is generosity for the global cause of Jesus Christ. And so I'm just going to politely punch you in the wallet right now. The question is how are you doing with money? How are you doing with possessions? And how are you doing with the desire for God's provision? That's the question. Because you have every right to ask for those things you do. And God wants you to ask for those things, He does. And he is eager and and interested in providing those things for you. And he is generous and gracious and and he loves to provide for his people. And he will provide those things to you and for you. And your, your father knows you need them. But the question is, do you share the perspective of the poet that everything you own is on loan to you for the sacred mission of reaching the world? Because one day all the earth is going to fear Yahweh. Bank on it. One day all the world will tremble before God as the treasure of the soul in a sacred global kingdom coming to a planet near you. Every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. However, you can misuse and abuse God's blessing to spend it on yourselves, or you can use it in a way to spend your lives for the global cause of the king. It's your choice. Choose wisely. Passionate plea number two. These will be shorter points. Passionate plea number two. Number two, you must plead for the peoples to sing God's praise. You must plead for the peoples to sing God's praise. And now we get to the next ring inside the circle. You see the poet just pled with power to proclaim God's name and to spread his fame to the very ends of the earth. But get this, in verses 3 and 5, he now describes what that's going to be like when that happens. In other words, the question is, what's it going to be like when a global kingdom comes to the earth? What's it going to be like when the ways of God are known on the earth, and his salvation is in all of the nations. And he says exactly what that's going to be like in verses 3 and 5. The next ring of the circle, look what he says. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you, verse 5. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. That's what it's going to be like, just like that. That's the destination, global praise from all the people groups on the face of the planet. And the fact that it's repeated twice is the poet's way of saying that this is definitely going to happen and it's going to be incredible. And there are three features of this global kingdom described here in verses 3 and 5, three things that we need to see this future global praise. Number one, there will be praise, which is obvious, right? Because four times in two verses, there is praise, 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 which is exactly what's going to happen when the king comes to reign. I think what that does is raise the simple but very necessary question, what does it mean to praise? Because we talk about praising God all the time, right? And we should always talk about that. But what does that actually mean? And to praise very simply means this. It means to prize God. God for the supremely valuable treasure that He is. See, praise is the expression of what it is that we prize the most. We declare the worth of what it is that delights us. We sing the praise of what it is that satisfies our souls. And so what the psalmist is picturing is uncontainable, thunderous praise from all the nations as God tears through the stratosphere and establishes his global sovereign kingdom on the planet. There will be praise. What that does is raise the question, do you praise God? Do you praise God? And which means I'm asking Do you prize God for the supremely valuable treasure that he is, or do you use him as a means to get what you really want? Hear the difference? Because you see it, don't you? There are are implications that the future global praise of God has on our lives now, doesn't it? It does. There there are application, implications in our lives that the future praise of God has on our lives today. And there are two implications more than that. But here are two implications of the future global praise. First implication, number one, worship and not missions is the most important activity of the church. That sounds risky to say. But worship and not missions is the most important activity of the church. Here's what I mean. Global praise is the goal of history. Agreed? And what that means is is that missions is a means to a greater, more satisfying end. It's temporary necessity. But you see, when this age is over and countless millions fall of the redeemed, fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more, but worship abides forever, which means our ministry, our job to you, for you, is to help you grow in worship. Second implication, worship is the fuel and goal of missions. Worship is the fuel and goal of missions. Of missions. What I mean is global praise is the goal of history. Agreed? But you see, prizing God now is what creates within us the passion to proclaim God's name. You see where passion for God is weak, zeal for missions is weak, When the flames of worship burn in the soul, the light of missions will shine to the darkest places on the face of the earth. Therefore, the secret, the secret to being used by Christ to cause ripple effects into eternity is to climb higher and higher and higher into the Himalayan heights of the glory of who God is from the pages of Scripture. Because when you behold his glory and beauty from the text, then you will worship. And when you worship, that is the fuel and goal of missions. So go to the text. Do not neglect the daily contemplation and meditation on the sacred text of scripture. You see, the nations need you. The nations need you. The nations need you to be exhilarated by God. So we saw that in this future kingdom coming to a planet near you, that there will be praise. But second, second, there will be people. There will be people in that kingdom. And in particular, I mean, there will be peoples, plural. Look again at the text. Verse 3 or verse 5. He says, let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. I mean, just, just think about that for a second peoples, nations, tribes, ethno-linguistic people groups from all the people groups on the face of the planet. This is going to happen. He is picturing Egyptians and Assyrians and Babylonians and Arabians and Greeks and Ethiopians, people who at the time hated Yahweh. And you know, you know that he means people more outside of just the, the, the close vicinity of the area in which he lived because he talks about all of the peoples. He's picturing something global and sweeping and comprehensive For one day God will be treasured by every nation on the face of the planet. And you see, what's interesting to me about this is that the world, godless and, and God-hating though it may be, they, they kind of get this, don't they? they they just feel it in their bones that the world should unite in global celebration over something they just don't have a clue what it is that should be i mentioned this when i when i preached this before you know when preparing for this i saw i just happened to randomly come across that old uh, Coca-Cola commercial from the 70s, you might remember it, and it's this really cheesy commercial of people from a couple hundred different nations are on this sort of like sound of music, a grassy hill, and, and they're all in their uh, clothes from their respective countries, and they all get together and they all have Cokes in their hand, and they sing this really cheesy, syrupy, sentimental song called I'd like to buy the world a Coke, and they're sort of swaying back and forth holding hands, drinking their Cokes. And it dawned on me when I saw the commercial, it's like the world gets it. They, 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 they kinda get it. They suspect that it would just be really great if there was something that could unite every tribe and tongue and nation and people. That the ideal situation to which we should strive is a glorious harmony between the nations filled with joy and yet the best they could come up with was a soft drink that causes cavities and gives you diabetes. Well, it's debatable. You see, the world, the best the world can come up with is a shapeless, godless, tasteless, convictionless utopia where everyone just sort of exists in a kind of dream world that will not do, says the poet. That will not do. Because to unify the world, you need a really big object. You need something big enough. You need something glorious enough where everyone can agree that it is the most glorious thing in the universe worth unifying over. You need something, or should I say, someone whose majesty has the gravitational power to unify radically different people groups. And the only one who fits that description is Yahweh himself. Which brings us to the third feature of the future, namely God himself, because guess what? God himself will be there on that future global kingdom reigning on the earth. Look at verses three or five, your choice. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. And did you notice? If you count the pronouns, God is referenced six times in two verses. See, in this inner ring of the chiasm, the poet is working hard to put God on display as the all-satisfying object of the nation's delight. Why? Because he has zero interest in some man-centered utopia. He's not merely interested in world peace. You know, you see, what he cares about. In fact, the only thing that matters is that God has his rightful place as the king and treasure of infinite worth, valued, enjoyed, loved, treasured by the nations. Because worship is ultimate, not missions. Because God is ultimate, not man. And I believe that when it all is said and done, at the end of the day, that the God who reigns and who will be praised is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. I think this is going to turn out to be the Messiah. That Psalm 67 is in its own way prophetic. It is in its own way eschatological. Christ essentially said this very thing in Matthew 25. I think it's in your notes. He says, whenever the son of man should come in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from before the foundation of the world. So the question becomes then, what do you do then? What do you do with this global praise from verses three and five? What do you do with this? What do we do with this glimpse of the future worship? Does this affect our lives at all in the present? And it has everything to do with us. It most certainly affects our lives in the present. And I'll give you three reasons. Number one, the peoples who will be there on the planet in the future kingdom, praising the Messiah will be there through the witness of the church. Through you, through us. I mean, there's not another way. We are the means. This is what Christ meant when he said to make disciples of all of the nations. Psalm 67 is the finish line to the mission that he gave us in Matthew 28 you see the kingdom is the destination and populating that kingdom with as many people as possible is the essence of the mission and it is in our hands the question is who are who are the perishing people that god has providentially placed in your life right now who are they what are their names What do they look like? What are the needs and the struggles and the burdens and the fears that they have? And the reason why I ask you that is because I want us to feel the weight of the fact that they are an eternal soul in the image of God, under the wrath and judgment of God, who need the grace of God, which is found alone in the Son of God. And just think, I just can't help but say, think about what it is that we have to offer the world. The message that we have to proclaim to the world infinite joy on a renewed planet under the reign of a matchless king in a sovereign kingdom that's that's the message we have to preach that is literally the most unembarrassing message to preach in the universe number two occasion number two of this future global praise You know this as well as I, that there's tons of confusion as to what the mission of the church actually is, isn't there? It's lots of confusion. And while feeding the poor, caring for the homeless, ending the sex trade, biblical justice, orphan ministry, and abortion have their rightful place in the church. It's not that those things don't matter. They do matter. It's just that those things are not the mission of the church. I'm not saying we don't do those things, I'm just saying those are not the mission of the church. You see, what we want is not merely the betterment of mankind, but the supremacy of God savored in every soul, on every nation on the planet. What that means is, listen carefully, what that means is what should provoke the most passion in our souls is that humanity by and large doesn't know God. you see, the centrality of God in our destination must make him central in our proclamation, which means the gospel is the thing. Number three. Third implication of this future praise. You know, the passion to proclaim the gospel to perishing people is prevented by sin in our lives on the one hand, But that passion is also produced by the power of the word on the other. What I'm saying is we must share the exact same salt passion that the psalmist has to reach the nations. In fact, we should exceed that passion because we know the savior about whom he was talking and we know the one for whom he was waiting. But you see, the problem is sin allowed to remain in our lives, unkilled, festering in our lives, actually murders the passion to reach the nations. It does. It does. There's no such thing as a private sin. There's so much more at stake than the private misery that sin sin brings into our lives. Rather, sin shrivels the soul's capacity to look outward. And it makes us a tunnel-visioned people who care only about our own needs and problems and dilemmas, and we don't give a rip about the world. On the flip side, however, meaningful, heartfelt, heartfelt, meditation on God's word is the weapon not only that weakens the power of sin in our lives, but more than that, it produces the passion to proclaim. I want you to be a people who are in the word every single day. Not because it checks the box or because it makes you superior to other people who don't do that, but because it generates propulsion. But you see, truth transforms the soul to see the world like God sees the world because how God sees the world is how a missionary sees the world because our God is a global God. Our God is a missionary God. Which brings us third and finally, third passionate plea. Very quickly, passionate plea number three. You must plead for the nations to love God's reign you must plead for the nations to love god's reign because that's the question isn't it what is it called when you have something on the top and the bottom and something really tasty in the middle what is that called and there's lots of options to choose from there are oreos there are ice cream sandwiches there are calzones they don't really fit they're a little different philly cheesesteak sandwiches double double burgers from in and out you see all of those things qualified as something in which there is a top and there is a bottom and there is something tasty and delicious in the middle but you see if if you ask the psalmist that question he would say that psalm 67 verse 4 is the thing that has something on the top and the bottom and verse 4 is the tasty thing in the middle that was a setup Because here we arrive at the very core, the very center, the very entree of the poem. In other words, having progressed from the outer rings of the circle into the middle, we now get to the gravitational center of the poem. And what we find here is the deepest explanation of why it is the nations will rejoice. Look at verse four. Here it is. Here is the destination, in other words. Let the nations be glad. And literally that next word, ranan, is to shout for joy. Let the nations be glad. Let them shout for joy. Why? For you, God, will judge the peoples with uprightness, and you will guide the nations on the earth. And there it is. It's unmistakable the volcanic, joyful exuberance. Think about verses three and five. There was praise, 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 and here there is is gladness and shouting for joy. One day, one day, the screams of anger and cries of agony that fill the planet will be replaced by gladness and shouting for joy. This is the destination. This is where all of human history is headed. Why? What's going to happen? How is this going to happen? Notice the argument in the text. Let the nations be glad. Let them shout for joy. Why? For you, God, will judge the peoples with uprightness. And you will guide the nations on the earth. And there it is, two reasons. Two reasons why the nations will be glad and shout for joy. The first is that God will judge the peoples with uprightness rightness and you see the thing about that word judge is that the word judge just doesn't do that word justice it doesn't that word literally has the idea of bringing order out of chaos it's to take something backwards and twisted and chaotic and perverted like our planet for instance and bring it to a place of complete order and equilibrium. It is to make all things be the way they ought to be and one day that's exactly what King Jesus is gonna do One day he's going to take a broom called a scepter to all the dirty cobwebs of the current world order and reestablish his loving rule and authority over every square inch of the planet. I mean, we're talking about a complete political and global and social and economic and spiritual turnover, an absolute overhaul when Christ establishes his kingdom on the planet. And notice that he will do so, sure with uprightness, meaning what meaning? No corruption, no scandals, no underhanded maneuvering, No bribes, no deception, no manipulation, no political lobbying or power grabbing. Instead, he is going to literally extract the power of sin from the planet and reestablish his sovereign authority and rule over the nations. And the result of that will be such euphoria, such euphoria over the divine utopia that the nations will be glad and they will shout. finally here is a king who does what is right finally here is a king who does what is best and what is best is himself to be enjoyed Don't you see? An inherent part of our gospel presentation should be the final destination. What we have to tell people about is not just their personal individual forgiveness of sins, but rather that one day with the glory of a thousand sons, Jesus Christ will take back the rebel planet and he will make it an empire of joy of all the things that the gospel is. This is one of the things on the list that, the people in your life desperately need to hear the second reason i'm getting close to being done here the second reason why the nations will be glad and sing for joy is number two god will guide the nations on the earth he will guide the nations on the earth and don't misunderstand god is sovereign now he rules all things perfectly today jesus christ has all authority in heaven and on earth. Nothing happens in the world apart from the sovereign decree of Jesus Christ, including sin and evil. But one day, Christ will bring all things into perfect conformity to the glory of his word. All things will be done on earth exactly as they are done in heaven. So think about it. Think about what this psalm means for us today. Then Three implications, then I'm done. Three implications. First, this psalm makes really clear, really, really clear, that God's aim in history and everything he does is not merely his glory, but the gladness of the nations in his glory that the goal of history is the white-hot worship of Jesus Christ from every nation with white-hot increasing intensity forever. That is the goal of history. That's exactly how the world is going to end. And that changes everything about our perspectives in the present, doesn't it? Number two, the global joy of the nations is the mission of the church. The global joy of the nations is the mission of church. church and the nations who will be there in the kingdom will be there precisely through the witness of the church through you through us through this church there's not another way we are brokers consider yourselves brokers of eternal joy through the proclamation of the gospel that is your mission and number three I want some of you to leave not to other churches but to other nations to plant other churches in other words I want you to pray about leaving the comfy confines of America and allowing us to send you out as missionaries is what I'm saying you need to pray about that you need to ask about that doesn't matter your your age and those of you who don't go, I just got to tell you, nothing changes. Your job is the exact same as theirs, which is to make disciples of all of the nations. The difference is they need a passport to do what they do. You don't need one. So I'm asking you to pray. Close with this. I really want this church to be a haven for you. I want this church to be a haven preparing vessels not for the cushy yacht life of American luxury, but I want us to be a haven preparing battleships armed with the gospel who venture into the storm-tossed, shark-infested ocean of humanity. Because you remember that as a church, we have two things. We have a mission, and we have a destination. And trust me when I say that that mission cannot possibly fail. And believe me when I say that the destination will most certainly not disappoint. Let's pray. Oh Lord, who knew that there would be so much crammed, jammed, mushed into seven verses. Thank you for the psalm. Thank you for what it is. Thank you for the joy that is uncontainable, the the joy that that radiates, Lord, and we want to experience that. We long for these days, O Lord. We look at Psalm 67 and we look at the headlines and they're exactly the opposite. We look at the psalm and we look at the headlines and we know that that Psalm 67 is what the world needs. We look at this psalm and we look at the headlines and we know, oh Lord, that is what the world is eventually going to be we need faith Lord we need perspective we need your vision your perspective of what you are doing in the world oh Lord help us to not be a people who fear help us to not be a people who clam up who shrivel up inside our homes I pray that we would not retreat from the world but we would engage the world more than ever And I pray that it would be your global missionary heart for every tribe and tongue and nation and people that produces that within us. We look forward to that. Empower us, strengthen us, always and only for the glory of your son in whose matchless name we pray.